Good afternoon. <laughs> now, I know how these things right after lunch work. So if you get sleepy, stand up. <laughs> I'll stand up. Hopefully I won't get sleepy. So <laughs> maybe that'll work pretty good. All right. The elder's assignment was to help prepare everybody to study the book of Romans. So this lesson a little bit different uh, than maybe what you might have expected. Uh, it is keys to studying the book of Romans. And we're going to talk about that in several different ways. Let's start out with, with something very, very important, and yet maybe we don't deal with it enough at times. And that is Romans is from Paul to the saints at Rome. That's what it's all about. All right, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Start off with that idea. Paul, a bondservant. That's not really the word you and I probably would use there. The word literally translated is a slave of Jesus Christ. And while you might say, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, slave? Where'd that come from? Just look at him later when he writes in chapter 6, uh, beginning verse 16, he says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves Servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. And by the way, if you look at all those words, slave, over and over and over again. Everybody in this audience today who is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong is a slave. There's no question about whether we are slaves. It is to whom or to what are you enslaved? And Paul understood that. And so as he writes these brethren, he describes himself as a bondservant, also called to be an apostle. Uh, he emphasizes that in various places. We read about it, of course, in Acts chapter 9, where Ananias, of all people, learns that that's the purpose uh, that the Lord has for him. We can also see it in the opening verse of both uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy, he said, he is an apostle by the commandment of God. 2 Timothy says, by the will of God. And brethren, think about it. The commandment of God is the will of God. And so they really go together. So the, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. Now, when was it written? Well, I'm going to give you what I think is a really biblically educated guess on that. And that is likely near the end of the third missionary journey. Now, how do we get there? All right, let's look at some verses. And we're going to see why we get there. Romans chapter 15, verse 25, Paul tells the brethren at Rome what his plans are. But now... I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to these saints. Now turn over to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're at the end of what we often call the third missionary journey. And at that point, in verse 16, we find this from Luke. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So put the two together. Where are we? We're at the end of the third missionary journey. What year is that? It's about 57. 
who is uh, who is key in the area at that time? You know, they, we're talking about Rome. Rome is the dominant uh, power in the world, and Paul is longing to be with them, but he's headed to his first imprisonment. This is not the imprisonment with Nero that will happen later and is reported in 2 Timothy. This is the first one, uh, which he does escape, and he describes that as well in 2 Timothy. But to whom is he writing? Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. We might say it differently, called to be sanctified, called to be set apart, called to be purified. That's what this is all about. Paul is Paul the Apostle is writing to the church at Rome. He's never been there yet, but as he writes them, he's writing to people who are beloved of God, called to be set apart. So having recognized that Romans is from Paul to the saints at Rome, let's go to the next point. And that is Romans declares all are sinners. Look with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. And I want to give you a, a little tidbit that I got way years ago from my dad. He said the Apostle Paul had a unique ability. And what he would do is he would get you nodding your head yes. He would say, he would say something with which you would totally agree. And then he'd say something else with which you'd totally agree. And then finally, he'd rope you in. And before you knew it, you'd gone. Uh, and that's exactly what he does with Romans. Just watch how he sets this thing up. And it's really beautifully done when you think about it. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 22. And you really could start all the way back in verse 18. I'm well aware of that. You can go all the way to the end of the chapter. But I didn't think you all wanted to be here till supper time. Okay, so I'm just reading a few verses. All right, look at, look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. All right, what's the point? Gentiles are sinners. Now, can I give you a little sidelight? You're going to be studying Romans. And I'm, my assignment is to help you study Romans. Everybody in here that wants to really study it seriously needs to buy a pack of colored pencils. I'm dead serious. <laughs> they work like a charm. All right, when you start out a book and you find some key word or some key expression, you choose the pencil color that you want, whatever that is. Let's say it's green. All right, so you come to uh, that verse, and we've already seen it, verse 24. God also gave them up. Take your green colored pencil and lightly scratch over those words. What's going to happen is you're highlighting it, but it won't, it won't go all the way through your Bible. If you use a highlighter, it goes through six pages. That's not really a good idea, I don't think. 
But if you use a colored pencil and just lightly rub, it will, it will color those words. Now, why do I want to do that? What I'm looking for is commonality. So watch this, verse 24. For this reason, God gave them up. There comes the second case. Green pencil out again. Got to rub over that. Got to see that as we go through. Verse 28, here we come again. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Green pencil. <laughs> Why did God do this? Every time what you learn within this text in Romans is the Gentiles gave up God and God then gave them up. It's always in that order. Even in our lives today, if God gives me up, it's because I gave him up first. That's a critical thing to remember as we look through these passages. So we begin with the downward spiral of the Gentiles into sin. And you can just about see all those Jewish brethren who are converts. They're all going, yes, amen, Paul. Amen, Paul. All right, he starts chapter 2, and he says Jews are in sin, but it's just some Jews. And that's very interesting the way he does that. So listen to what, what he talks about. Chapter 2, starting verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So we're not talking about all Jews, are we? We're talking about Jews who do the same things the Gentiles do. And yet they judge them. Boy, you are bad. You know, but, but they don't see the bad in themselves. Does that not sound like our society, our world today? Is that not where we are? Where everybody can see what's wrong with everybody else, but they don't see the problem they have in their own life? That's exactly what's going on. Some of the Jews were like that. So go ahead. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. All right, so far now, he's got these the self-righteous Jews over here who are not practicing these things. They've heard him say, Gentiles are sinners. Those brothers, amen, brother. Amen, brother. And then he says, some Jews are also sinners because they do just like the Gentiles. Amen, Brother Paul. Amen, Brother Paul. Now he gets to chapter 3. And watch what he does in verse 10. Quotes from the Old Testament, which all those self-righteous Jews who are now Christians should have known. And he says, for there is none righteous. No, not one. And you can just about hear those Jews sitting in that audience going, Amen. 
No men. Why not? Because he just nailed them. They're in the same camp. They've got the same problem. And in verse 23, what does he go on to say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Paul has established a very, very important point that you've got to remember all the way through the book of Romans. And really, we need to remember it anyway because we're in, we have the same problem. We have to deal with the same thing they dealt with. So we begin with the idea of Paul writing to the saints at Rome. We continue with this exposure to the fact that Romans declares all are sinners. And then we find the good news of salvation is in Christ. If you really want to zero in on an overarching theme of the book of Romans, I think this is the overarching theme. That the good news of salvation is in Christ. You heard it read just a few moments ago, the key verse that they're going to use this coming year in uh, Lads to Leaders is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I dare say everybody here can quote it or at least will come pretty close to it. Where he says what? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Significantly, if you like to use your, your pencil a little bit more dramatically like I do, then you get a different color, maybe yellow this time, whatever, and you, and you highlight the word ashamed because guess what? That word comes up again. It comes up in chapter 6 where we see a contrast and it's in verse, uh, particularly verse 21. What fruit did you then have in the things of which you are now ashamed? So here Paul demonstrates that he's not ashamed of the gospel, but in the days of their sinful lives, they were ashamed of their sin. They were ashamed of the way they lived. They're at least ashamed now of the way they lived in the past. They're embarrassed to even think that they lived like that. That has a whole lot to do with the gospel, doesn't it? The great transformation that takes place because of that. How are we made righteous? And the answer is we're made righteous through Christ's obedience. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Now, I'm going to give you a technical definition of justified, and then I'm going to give you the old country boy definition, which I happen to like a little better, just to be honest about it. The technical definition of justified is to declare righteous, usually referring to God's action, that God declares us to be righteous. We're usually passive in the reception of that, by the way. And very important to see that. The Apostle Paul uses that many times in the book of Romans. So you, now you've got to get another color pencil. I don't know what color you want. Maybe red because it's justified. I don't know. Choose the color you like. Doesn't matter to me. And you want to highlight that word justified, chapter 5, verse 9. But you can also highlight it in chapter 2, verse 13. You can highlight it in chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 3, verse 26, chapter 3, verse 28, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, 4 verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1 and 9, which we've already seen, 
chapter 6, verse 7, where it, by the way, is translated freed, not justified in that particular case. And then chapter 8, verse 30, where it's used twice. And then in verse 33, where it's used again, 15 times. In the book of Romans, you find the word justified. Brethren, when somebody like Paul uses a word over and over and over again, sit up and pay attention. There's meaning there. Now, how does the old country boy define justified? Just as if I'd never sinned. And frankly, I like that very well. For one thing, I can remember it without a lot of study. <laughs> but for the other thing, it captures it exactly, doesn't it? That's exactly what justification does. It makes us as if we'd never sinned. But as the technical definition says, it's God that does that, not we that do it to ourselves. Very important to see that. Now, having realized that, that justification is there, we need to understand something more. Our justification is by Christ's obedience. Look at chapter 5, verse 19, as he talks about this justification again. And here's what he says. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The word that is translated there, obedience, comes from the original word, hupakuo. And you're saying, quit showing off. I say, well, I've got two answers to that. Number one, my mom and dad paid a lot of money for me to learn that word. And I'm going to get their money's worth out of it. But number two, you ought to know that word to some extent. Akuo. Anybody ever talk about the acoustics in this auditorium? That's your word. Akuo. It's, it's what you hear. Hoopa is under. Underhearing. Somebody that places their hearing under somebody else is going to totally obey them. They're going to do whatever they say. And so you have Jesus when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. What does he say? He puts his hearing under God. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Hupakuo. He put his hearing under the Father. That word, by the way, is used again in the book of Hebrews in much the same way. It's very, very powerful when you see it. Significantly, if you do much studying about all of us, guess what? We're supposed to hupakuo Christ. We're supposed to put our hearing under Christ. And that's very, very powerful to me because I know what Jesus did when he did that. Now I know what I ought to do, whether I do it or I don't. So very, very key to see the good news of salvation. But now watch this, is in Christ. In Christ. Watch it. We're going to see it start first. Chapter 3, verse 24, and then on down. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Stop. Anybody in the news, are you news junkies? Old debaters are terrible news junkies. I ought to know. You know I, I, but I don't get my news from where most people get it. I don't watch TV news. I don't read the local newspaper. I know where to go to find out theoretically the truth. And I use the word theoretically meaningfully. I promise you. But if you, if you watch the, the news, then you've heard somebody say quid pro 
quo. Okay, what's a quid pro quo? That means a payment in kind. Now, what we've just read in this verse is, for my release from sins, there's no payment in kind. I didn't give God a payment of equal value. You see that? Who did? Jesus. That's what the text says, right? So there's no quid pro quo. Instead, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, watch it, in Jesus. So watch what he says. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. Here, the word translated propitiation is very, very interesting. Because in the Septuagint, you know what the Septuagint is? Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And you might say, why bring that up? We don't use that. The Lord did. <laughs> he, he quoted from it more than once. So it must, there must be a little bit of power there. Here, the word translated propitiation in this verse is the word in Septuagint translated mercy seat. Now, I want everybody to think, what was the value of the mercy seat in the Old Testament? That was where the high priest went once every year and sprinkled blood, first for his own sins, and he went back and sprinkled blood for the sins of the nation. Jesus is our high priest. Read Hebrews. It just clears a bell. Hebrews especially, 5, 6, 7. That's where you're going to get into it in great depth. And he's our high priest. What does he do? He offers a sacrifice. Where does he offer it? At the mercy seat. Which mercy seat? The throne of God. Not the one in a tabernacle on earth, or the one in the temple on earth, but instead he takes it to the very throne room of God and offers blood for my sins. That's powerful. Where do you find it? In Christ. In Christ. That's the way we ended verse 26. Now watch 6.11 because you'll pick up on it again. There he says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Where, Paul? In Christ Jesus our Lord. And then look again. As you go on down. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where is it found? In Jesus Christ our Lord. Over and over again. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you decide to follow my color pencil approach, you better find a special pencil that you're going to use only for one expression, and that's in Christ. Because the Apostle Paul uses in Christ, I think it's 168 times in 13 epistles. So you just want to go ahead and start. You can start with the very first one, Romans. We just saw it. And you can go to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, all of them. 
They've all got in Christ. In fact, Ephesians has some form of in Christ 30 times in that book. How important is it to be in Christ Jesus? Why, it's the utmost importance. And the book of Romans makes that very, very clear. Now, I might ask a side question, which I think does deal with our understanding of this book, and that is, how do you get to be in Christ? How does that take place? The apostle in chapter 6 goes into some detail about it. I want to particularly look at verses 3 and 4, because there he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. How do you get to be in Christ Jesus? Well, Romans 6, 3 and 4 says baptism. But you might say, whoa, wait a minute. Well, you're picking on one passage. Okay, fine. Let's try another one. What about Galatians? Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, where the apostle says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, your denominational friends are going to say, See there? You're a child of God by faith. And I'm going to say, wait a minute. Is that present, past, or future tense? You are all the children of God. Is that present, past, or future? Surely somebody here knows grammar. Huh? That's present tense, right? To whom is Paul writing? He's writing to the churches of Galatia, right? They're already Christians. So how does a Christian maintain his relationship as a child of God with the Father? By faith. The same way that the men and women of faith did in Hebrews chapter 11. Keep doing what God wants you to do. But it's verse 27 that tells how you got there. For as many of us have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ. How do you get there? That's two passages already to say through baptism. That's how you get there. Very important to see that. One more, by the way, on the in Christ. It's from Romans chapter 8. It's the closing verses. I think on the notes on the screen, it only uses one. I want to do more than that. Uh, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is, watch it, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where is God's love found? In Christ Jesus. The book of Romans makes it very, very clear throughout that the good news of salvation is in Christ. But then the book also shows those declared righteous will live righteously. All right, really, it's interesting. The book of Romans is bookended. And when I say bookended, Paul starts it the same way he ends it. And listen to him now, Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through him we receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. That's chapter 1, verse 5. Now look at Romans 16, 26. But now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations 
according to the commandment of the everlasting God, what? For obedience to the faith. It's not just an intellectual activity, is it? No, no, no. Faith is way more than just an intellectual activity. It involves obedience to faith. Yeah, but it's the faith. Not just faith. You see, all of us should have faith, but he's not talking about my faith or your faith here. He's talking about the faith. And when you look at that word, take, for example, in Jude verse 3, you find Jude who really wanted to write about the common salvation, and who wouldn't? You know, let's write about how we've all been saved and how we're all going to go to heaven if we remain faithful in Christ. That'd be a wonderful topic to deal with, but he has to stop and do what? And urge them to earnestly contend. We'd say wrestle. Earnestly contend or wrestle for what? Wrestle for the faith. Watch it. The faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. The faith. And that, that word according to Vine, is by metonymy, the sum of all that is believed. In Scripture, most often, when it's the faith, it's talking about everything we believe, the totality of it. And that's exactly what you're running into here in Romans chapter 16, verse 26. Obedience to the faith, the sum of all that we believe. Now, We've got to, as a people who have become righteous, been made righteous by God. We're passive in it. We're active in our obedience. But what is that? That's actually, uh, it's more nearly meeting a, a, a requirement that is there. You ever, uh, years ago, uh, Teresa and I lived in a house in Mobile, Alabama with our children. And they opened up a brand new, unique kind of grocery store in a shopping center that was right behind our house. We wanted to go see it. We'd heard lots about it. So we went and saw it, and they had a thing where as, a, as an encouragement for people to come, you could register to win a boy's and a, or a girl's bicycle. Well, if you want to give me something free, I'm, I'm all for it, you know. So I signed up, and we went on home. And somebody called and said, Gary, where are you? I said, I'm at home. And they said, well, they just announced your name on the radio. You've got 15 minutes to go over there, and you want a bicycle. Well, guess what? If I didn't get there, I didn't win a bicycle. Oh, it wasn't that I couldn't have. I didn't meet the conditions. Now, when I drove over there and walked through the door, did I earn the bicycle? No. They gave it to me. And I promptly hid it in the attic and gave it to my daughter because I didn't have enough money to buy her bicycle for Christmas, but that was a great, great way to do it. You know, I thought, just tuck it, throw it away, except she was nosy and found it. But that's a whole different story. <laughs> but you get the point, right? We, we, we become, are made righteous by God because we meet his preconditions. And that's what Paul's all about in this book. Meet his preconditions, and then he'll make you righteous. And when we're made righteous, how should we live? We ought to live like we're righteous. So, when you get to chapter 12, guess what he does? He spends a whole chapter talking about day-to-day -day righteousness. 
It's from one end to the other of that chapter. By the way, if you want your children to memorize one chapter in Romans, get them to memorize chapter 12 because it can transform their lives. You might say, "My, oh, no, no, that's too much for a child. At the age, at the age of 13, I had a fellow tell me, if you will recite from memory Romans 12 to me, I'll give you a Bible. I preached from that Bible for a lot of years. It can be done. Listen, brethren, you want your, you want your smartphone fixed? Give it to your child. And if they're smart enough to fix a smartphone, they're smart enough to, to memorize Romans 12. We have not challenged our children enough. This Lads to Leaders program, I know not everybody's on board with that. Now, I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about wherever. <laughs> Where I am, not everybody's on board with it, okay? I know that. But let me tell you something. What you do with children in their childhood is in large measure going to impact what they do in life. It is important that we find ways to challenge them with the Scripture and bring them up in honor to God and to glorify His name. Chapter 12 will help do that. Chapter 13, how do you live righteously? You treat the government like you ought to treat the government. Isn't that interesting? Every year on April the 15th, I keep trying to reread Romans 13 and figure out a way around it. <laughs> I would rather not. But, you know, that's what it says do, right? You honor those in power. Why? Because God put them there. Isn't that the message of Romans chapter 13? Then you got chapters 14 and 15, and they talk about living righteously in relation to your fellow Christians. How do you treat a fellow Christian who has scruples about them? They've got some weaknesses. They've got some matters of concern. They don't exactly know how to deal with some of these things. It's not a matter of right or wrong. Paul makes that point very clear. Could you go the rest of your life as a Christian and never eat meat in the first century or now? And the answer to that is yes. You could do that. Could you go the rest of your life and always eat meat and still be a Christian? Yes, that's the answer. So there's not a right or wrong here, is there? Except that a brother or a sister who is struggling with that concept who believes that it would be sin for them to eat especially certain kinds of meat, that brother or that sister does not need to be encouraged to violate their conscience based on my actions. Because it might cost them their souls. By the way, Paul deals with that also in 1 Corinthians 8 and also chapter 10. Very important. Chapter 16, well... Chapter 16 is kind of a wrap-up chapter. It's typical Paul. He does a lot of, uh, you know, take care of this business and that piece of business. But I will say that chapter, when you get to it, young people and adults alike, when you get there, watch some of the tremendous statements of friendship and relationship that Paul has in chapter six, 16 when he says, Rufus, mother, and mine. Don't you wonder about that? Wouldn't you like to know more about Rufus's mother? I would. Because, you know, that, that's a, a remarkable statement they made there. What about uh, Aquila and Priscilla? 
who risked their own necks, when did they do it? How did they do it? I don't know the answers to these questions, but these intrigue me. And they show relationships and the power of those relationships within the body of Christ. So brethren, keys to understanding Romans, these are my keys. I start with, just like we did, the fact that it's a book written by the Apostle Paul to the people at Rome who are set apart, sanctified. I go on to recognize that Romans declares that all of us are sinners. Then, that the good news of salvation is in Christ. You don't get anything else, that one you ought to get. Underline it. Make sure it's part of your vocabulary as a Christian. And And then finally, when we are in Christ, when we're made righteous, then we're going to live like we're righteous. We're going to live as if we have been transformed, as if we have been purified, as if we have been declared just as if I'd never sinned. But friends, how do you get there? Remember? In Christ Jesus. How do you get to be in Christ Jesus? Didn't we discover it was through baptism? That was it. And so if you're here today and you're not in Christ Jesus, you now know how. And you can be just as if you'd never sinned if you'll come while we sing.